This is episode seven of Tales from the Quarantine. Uh, welcome to uh, Tales from the Quarantine. Uh, today, my guest is an old friend of mine uh, from my time up in Thunder Bay, and uh, he's uh, he's a he's a good guy. We'll call him Mr. Thomas. He can introduce himself and tell you a little bit about him, what his experiences have been, and uh, yeah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sean. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Give our, give our listeners a little bit about a little history about you, uh, um, more like rundown of what you've been doing recently. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my name's Kevin Thomas. I'm from Thunder Bay. I, as you know, we worked together many, many years ago in the Army. I'm still a reservist, but really my background, my civilian work, I have, I have a background in, in political science. So, um, yeah, I studied at, at Lakehead University right here in Thunder Bay with a double degree in political science and history. So I'm kind of a kind of a political nut. I'm a news junkie, say the least. And uh, yeah, I've just been just been surviving in in quarantine, self isolation. So I'm working from home right now. Yeah, and I s- recently saw that you had an interesting uh, interesting event, <laughs> a little social distancing event that happened not too long ago. Oh boy, yeah. So on Saturday we had me and my me and my wife got married, and it was it was fun times because we had this whole big elaborate wedding planned for August, and we've been planning it for about a year, year and a half now. And if you thought like planning a wedding is a lot of work, imagining we can't we decided to cancel our wedding and just have a backyard wedding instead that everybody can zoom into, and we did. It, we literally planned an entire wedding in our backyard in under four days. Yeah, I know how hard it is to plan a wedding. I did one last year, uh, but wow, that how many? Uh, like, how did that work? Was it like because I'm assuming that's probably going to be a normal like how people are going to get married if they choose to for the next little while. Like, how did uh, having a Zoom wedding work out for you too? Well, the trickiest thing, and I'm not sure if all your listeners are are from Ontario, but we're limited to social gatherings of five people. And how do you get married with only five people in attendance, right? So, like, there's us two. We had to have two witnesses, and we had the officiant, and that was really it. But what we were able to do is we decided that we would have it in in my mother's backyard because my mother is, is immunocompromised. She's stuck at home. But at least she could still kind of be there by looking out the window and taking photos. Well, that was nice. That was nice of you. Um yeah, I, I I know a little bit about the immunocompromised. My father-in-law has cancer at the moment, so we're trying to keep him distant from everybody. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, it is what it is. But uh, I saw the pictures um, on Facebook, and I'm just kind of like, how like how many people that tuned in for your your wedding? So we had so we put out a Zoom channel to um, our closest relatives. We had about thirty households check in. But keep in mind, that's not like 30 people because we had cousins watch with their three, four, five kids. We had our aunt go over to our grandparents' house so they could watch it too. So we must have had over 100 people watching it online. That's nice. And we were we were able to record the whole thing too. So we're going to make a video and send it out to whoever didn't get to watch right away. Yeah, I heard, uh, heard your best man got you a super awesome uh, gift. So that was very unexpected. My my best man, John, somehow in, in under four days, he found out one of my wife's favorite characters from Harry Potter, because originally we were going to have like a, a subtle, tasteful Harry Potter themed wedding because we're both mm-hmm. gigantic nerds. 
And uh, he managed to get Ginny Weasley to wish us, you know, a happy marriage. <laughs> and he also, got, he also got Meredith from The Office, which was, which was kind of hilarious, too. She's a very nice lady. Like, that, that is, that's got to be something, like, that brings this whole self-isolation, social distancing thing. Like, that right there, having that probably enhanced the, uh, the feeling of togetherness. Would would that would you would you say that or would like how was how was the feeling when you guys watched those videos? Oh, it was it was amazing. We had no idea he was doing that, and I don't think my wife cried during the ceremony, but she started tearing up as soon as she saw saw Jenny Weasley referencing us by name in a in a happy video. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations on on the the marriage, and hopefully you have fun being isolated with your wife. <laughs> oh, thank you so much at least you don't have kids <laughs> oh i i don't know how you're doing it right now i mean it's literally just me at home right now because my my wife and my roommate are both essential workers yeah and like i don't know how you could do this with kids i've seen my cousins have kids you know my family has a lot of kids and it's it's quite a struggle to keep them entertained keep them eating healthy and just trying to explain to them that you can't go out and see your friends, unfortunately, because it's not it's not good for anybody's health. Yeah, well, we've drilled it into my kids' heads that they have they can't see their friends. They miss school, they miss their friends, but uh, they know like even the kids on the street. I told them like you can't go over and play with your your friends at their house, which you know it, it's hard, especially when they see them outside playing when they're outside playing. But uh, you know you, you get a bit creative. The hard part is the fact that. The whole nighttime routine has kind of changed because they're not worn out as much during the day anymore. So they stay up later, and uh, that's that's fun. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, like, what have you been doing? Like, you just got married. You planned a wedding in four days. Uh, what have you, like, what have you been doing the last, like, month of self-isolation? And even before then, really? Well, I'm still I'm still working a lot from home, so it's a lot of emails, a lot of texts. I think I have Slack and WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and text, and just like everybody's trying to talk to me through all of these various different means. So it's always fun trying to juggle that, but it's also nice that I can I have you know a sizable house that I can have a little office to myself that I can work in, which I know not everybody is is so lucky. And yeah. sometimes I can just work at the kitchen table and. Right now, I'm doing a 2,000-piece puzzle of the world. <laughs> that's, that's kept me entertained. Yeah, I have models that I've been planning on doing. Like I have a Titanic and a USS Arizona and a C-130 and a few other things. And I'm just trying to find the time to do them between keeping my kids entertained and getting keeping the house in order and all that fun stuff yeah and it's yeah i think one of the one of the biggest benefits has been that um i just returned from operation reassurance in latvia in january and i'm a, i'm already an introverted person so i spent most of the post deployment just staying at home and finding hobbies that i like to do so by the time this pandemic came out and i had to stay at home i'd already i've already been at home for weeks yeah so i went yeah. i went into this prepared how was europe Europe was, it was amazing while we were over there. I mean, the COVID-19 wasn't even, wasn't even in the news by the time I left. But I got to work with a lot of, lot of soldiers from Spain and from Italy and from the Balkans. 
And it's just, it's crazy. You think now you read the stories about how these, how these Spanish and Italian troops are, are operating in a pandemic. And these guys, are, I was working with these guys four months ago. Yeah, well, things change pretty rapidly. Like, basically, the second week of March, everything just changed. And in Italy, things changed before then. They got yeah. hit hard. Spain's getting hit hard. And now, well, America is, uh, it, it's unfathomable what's going on there with, uh, what, 25,000 deaths and one quarter of the total uh, infection rate of the world. Of known yeah. infection, I should say. Um. And you have a president that's just in denial about everything. It's either he switches between denying or just finding anybody else he can blame about it. Yeah, like I find that interesting that he cut uh, funding to the World Health Organization, and all that does is cut America's voice out of that organization. It it will be like a speed bump, but it's not like the funding gap that America has left now is going to be made up quite easily by the other nations that are trying to funnel uh international like trying to get an international effort to together to fight this virus and yeah i get it there's some concern that the world health organization has uh been kind of been helping uh push a china's narrative early on but really china was the only country that was affected early on and the only information we had was from china so you got to give them some wiggle room there. Yeah. And China has a history of never, never really accurately reporting their statistics. Right. Well, the, the only, the only like information that I'm get that, that I've really gotten. Um, and I think the world's gotten has only been from the epicenter. Like they had massive movement from that, that city all around their country. And they only had 84,000 cases or around that number. I, I don't believe it. I don't think anyone with a brain would believe it. Yeah, I'm not convinced whatsoever. The, there's a funny thing I, I read there that uh, uh, Trump is having the U.S. Treasury print his name on all like the relief checks that they're issuing. What a what a vanity project! Here's your $1,200 check. By the way, you, the average taxpayer in America, are giving $16,000 to all the companies we're going to bail out. But here, here's yeah. your here's your $1,200 check with my name on it. If this doesn't wake them up to the idea of like a more universal healthcare system or just a larger safety net, then I don't know what will. Like I've mentioned on a past podcast that this is like a test run for what's going to happen in like a decade or two when automation takes over. You're going to have mass unemployment. What are we going to do? And if they can't figure it out now, they're not going to figure it out. Well, I think that's one of the things that fascinates me most about this pandemic. And yeah, it's it's very scary because I know it's going to affect a lot of people in, in very negative ways. But the inner political science nerd in me is just fascinated that you're seeing all of these countries face pretty much the same problem at the same time, which has never happened before in, in our generation or even in our parents' generation. And now you're watching all of these countries try and rally all the resources that they can in their own way to, to fight essentially the same problem. And we're going to be able to in live in real time compare how all of these countries do yeah and that's that's an interesting thing like we're looking at different like different approaches like um like in canada like we're seeing like a more national focused approach though it appears alberta is wanting to kind of buck that system and i i honestly think it's out of partisan reasons um i i 
we could have done things better, but I don't think that they should be going after unproven medicine in Canada because we have a higher standard than some other countries do. But uh, mostly like uh, Ontario, Quebec, um, places where you have relatively polarizing political ideologies, they've all kind of pushed that to the wayside and come together as a single force, a, a national force. And, and it's really nice to see that. Whereas you have other countries um, like Sweden, who they haven't, they, they're recommending people stay home, but they haven't forced a shutdown and keeping pretty much the schools open, restaurants open and all that fun stuff. And then you have the United States, which is, there's really no national focus there. There's no, uh, it's all state by state. So you have some states doing it harder than other states. And that's really, unless they, like, they, they it's going to hurt them in the long run. And, and we're seeing them get hurt really bad by it now. Yeah. And especially when you have, um, when you have red and blue, hard red and blue states that are potentially getting ignored at the federal level for purely partisan reasons, just because the man in the White House just doesn't want Michigan to have enough PPE. For, uh, for another thing that just, it's interesting to see how our state has developed since the 80s as we adopted the neoliberalist policies of, of Ronald Reagan, of, of slowly deteriorating our social safety net. And all of these, all of these businesses, we just allow companies to maximize profits, essentially on the on the backs of their own workforce, and their workforce now are are the essential ones. Yeah, I've mentioned this before. Like, we're really going to have to look at our um, society and how we treat these people. Like, I worked in a grocery store. I made minimum wage. It was like seven something back when I was doing it, like seven dollars an hour. Um, I was a student, and I worked forty hours a week as a student during the summertime. I made peanuts though. I was a student. I worked with a lot of people who are still making minimum wage as adults and this is their main income. And like now you see all these people working and they're, they're working ridiculously hard to keep those store shelves uh, stocked. And we have to look at ourselves and figure like, okay, we've determined these people are essential. Do we pay them more or do we just treat them as cannon fodder for the next, the next big disaster? Oh, absolutely. During the um, the last provincial campaign, even before the last provincial campaign, as we were looking to roll out increasing the minimum wage to $14 and then $15, I had a lot of conversations, particularly with small, medium and large business owners that say we can't, we can't handle the cost of paying somebody a living wage, essentially what comes out to a living wage. So you have all of these essential workers stocking our, like, stocking our shelves that we don't believe deserve $15 an hour, especially when you when you consider the, the new CERB that the, the federal government rolled out of giving everybody $2,000 a month because that's what they, they deem people need to live on. The people stocking our shelves, the grocery workers, they're not making $2,000 a month. And if they are, like most of that is taxed. Well, the $2,000 will be taxed eventually, but... It's it's really really interesting, and and the fact is like if a company can't afford to pay their their people livable wages, that company shouldn't exist, um, because that is, you're basically asking people to work for indentured servitude, basically, either off the state or uh, off of uh, off of you your good graces, and that's like like we really need to look into this and figure out how we as a society can ensure that our people um, are 
taken care of. Um, but but speaking of the politics, you worked for a local politician where you live? Yeah, so I I worked for, for several years for a, a member of provincial parliament for, for Thunder Bay, Superior North. Um, they they allowed me to go on a, on a leave of absence so I can return to my my work as a reservist. But yeah, it was it was my job to to talk to a lot of his constituents and try to explain how how the government operates and ultimately fix their problems when they when they run into provincial bureaucracy. Yeah, how how has that experience um, enlightened your view of what's going on right now? Well, it it shows me that the majority of Canadians don't really understand how their government operates and that's that's never really been a secret so many people he's like oh your boss works for justin trudeau so obviously you can do that and it's like well no i work for the provincial government i work for the government of ontario which is a completely separate entity from from the federal government just things like that that you would imagine everybody would have learned in grade 10 civics and these are some very, very intelligent people that just don't actually understand how their how their government operates. They're very intelligent in other ways. But I think a lot of people are just too too afraid to talk about politics these days to actually have a thorough understanding of it. Well, the saying goes, don't talk uh, politics or religion amongst friends. Uh, I think that's going to change as we're all cooped up, staring at the staring at our news screens constantly constantly refreshing our news feed i think we're going to start seeing people talk about politics more yeah well you're seeing it now already and unfortunately there's a lot of misinformation out there there people are teaming to like how this was a bioengineered virus and how this was basically bioterrorism and yada 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 um how we should reopen the economy and uh we should just isolate old people and and all this stuff and it's like if we don't we can, there's two ways we can go about this. We can open everything up and no one's protected or we can lock everything down where we protect as many people as possible and reduce the rate of transmission. And uh, there's too many people out there that are voice of opening up the economy and getting in the rate of transmission to skyrocket. And they're looking at the rates of infection now saying, oh, it's not that bad. The rates of death, oh, it's not that bad. But that's because we have things in place which are preventing that. And if we stop those things, it's going to be bad. Yeah, I think we have a we have a pretty pretty good robust healthcare system right now. I know we are we are at capacity pretty easily, and unfortunately, we have had governments in the past that have been slowly defunding and eroding our healthcare system. But ultimately, we do have a pretty pretty flexible system in place in Canada. Yeah, which I think a lot of people take for granted. We have a relatively. Uh, well, it's not free, obviously, because we pay for it with our taxes. Yeah. It's it's convenient. And we're seeing how effective it is right now. And there's lots of places where it can be improved. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the fact that if you feel sick, you go to the hospital, the hospital will treat you um, as best and the best of their ability, given that this virus can just make it just they can't treat it as best as they like they it's hard to treat because it's a virus yeah we can treat the symptoms but we can't hit the underlying cause until we have a vaccine or a cure right yeah and like we're looking at like i can go if i get sick if i get this virus i can go to the hospital and i'll come out of that with zero dollar bill 
Whereas we're already seeing down in the United States where people are coming out with like $70,000 in treatment and with millions of people down there now losing their health insurance. It's getting, uh, it's going to be an interesting time for them. Oh yeah. And I think one of the things that's is waking people up is you see on, on social media all the time, all of these celebrities be like, Oh, I've tested negative for, for COVID-19. And you're like, wait a minute, you're not an at risk, you know, demographic here how are you able to get tests when the average person can't get a test without paying tens of sometimes tens of thousands of dollars yeah well that's because they have access that they get to for-profit system like if you yeah. have more money they'll push you to the front of that line and i think people are going to start realizing that that's just an inherently unfair system it's not a sustainable system Exactly. Like where us and most of Europe, it's a triage based system, whereas the person who is more ill or more injured gets pushed to the front of the line over the people who are less ill or less injured. And I, I think that's going to be hopefully that's going to be the way of the future for um, our, our neighbors to the south. But uh, you know what? You can't really uh, we, we can comment on it, but we don't really affect it. Yeah. So how have you, like, you've been uh, keeping cooped up, like, and you said your roommate and your, your wife are essential workers. Uh, can you tell me what they do? Okay, so um, our roommate, who is Amber's, Amber's maid of honor at the wedding, she's a nursing student. So she, she was going to college. Um, now all of her college is online, but she's also working as a, as a PSW for one of the, the long-term care homes in Thunder Bay. So yeah. she's, so she's intimately involved in in seeing all of these potentially compromised people and we already know the horror stories that are happening in long-term care homes if we don't get that don't get that taken care of yeah 29 uh residents at a care home in bob cage in my hometown uh, uh passed away due to covid i know i heard about that that's so sad yeah and uh luckily now the ontario government's banned um uh, care home uh, workers from working in multiple homes but I feel like the damage has already been done. Yeah. But yeah. And then, so my wife is a, uh, she's a social worker who specializes in, in high needs homelessness. So people that are instant, like coming out of, out of prison in their, in their institutionalized or people with mental health, drug addiction, stuff like that. She works on getting them housed. And right now she's stuck at a, uh, we call it, we call it the lodge. It's, it's owned by um, St. Joseph's care group for, all of these people where they can stay. So she has about 30 clients. They're all cooped up in the same building. They're not allowed to leave because they're all high risk of, of contracting this. So now she has, you know, 30 people. All of them are recovering from, you know, mental health issues, you know, paranoia, schizophrenia, or drug issues. And now they're all they're all stuck in the same room. They're all stuck in the same building with their own in own private rooms. And then she also yeah. has about 20 clients that literally either live on the street or they live in social housing or, or apartments that she's managed to find for them. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's dangerous. It's so tight. Uh, like A lot of those places, those group home style places, are, they're so tight in living space um, that that's like, if one person brings it in then there's going to be multiple people that get it in those situations. It's the same situation as the nursing homes, except for the the fact that the elderly are much more susceptible to this uh, virus. Yeah. And I think like the, the homeless population is something that 
unfortunately we're gonna we're gonna overlook we typically tend to um see them as invisible we always try to ignore homeless people unfortunately but now she has all of these clients that they're too afraid to to leave their apartment to go get food because they only have a hundred dollars worth of discretionary funding two hundred dollars maybe for the month and all of the all of the soup kitchens are closed except for one so if they want to go get food they have to go get on a crowded bus drive halfway across the city stand in line to to pick up maybe a small bag of food and then return home yeah that's uh i i'm thinking that if this continues we're gonna have to go to a, a delivery style method of rations like everyone gets the, a box of rations um yeah and i think that communities are gonna have to go to that method and i think it's gonna have to be delivered um because there's too many people that either high risk or they are they just don't want to risk it at all and we're gonna have to look at getting people food especially since a lot of these stapled items um with the the down draw of the food supply which will be experiencing which will increase prices and they're not gonna be able to get it i i know rationing sounds scary but even if you if you look at the historical examples of of great britain during the second world war they they experienced rationing and a lot of people reported that their health actually went up because now they're having maybe not the greatest quantity of, of quality food, but they actually had much better food than they were they were normally having, especially the poor people prior to the Second World War. Yeah, and there's also an increase of people gardening in the UK and throughout uh, most of the Western countries um, that were uh, not directly or as directly affected by the war. And I feel that like for me, I'm starting a garden this year. Um, we're growing foods I know my kids will eat or me and my wife will eat. And uh, we're going to start uh, canning as well. Something I've been wanting to do for a long time. But uh, this is kind of the kick in the pants that I need um, to get that done. And I think we're going to see a, a rise of people being more self-sufficient or at least self-reliant in um, some basic means. Um, and I think that is one, that's a good thing. And uh, two, uh, it's I think that that is going to help um, lessen the stress on some of the grocery stores for produce, like fresh produce, if people are out there growing their own food uh, as best they can. I know not everyone can, given that some people live in high rises or they have tiny little lots. But uh, yeah, I think that if more people are going to start gardening and more people are going to start uh, being more conscious about what they purchase. And I think it's a good learning opportunity too. If you're, if your kids are stuck at home all day, why not bring them into the garden and teach them about biology and how it works? Yeah, that's, that's one thing my kid keeps asking about uh, when we start in the garden, when, when are we making the garden? When are we going to start gardening? And uh, uh, yeah. And my other one uh, keeps asking about when are we going to go fishing? So <laughs> as long as the fishing season stays open, I'm going to take, uh, take my kids fishing to, just bring it back to uh, uh, getting our own food, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's pretty easy to to maintain your, your two-meter distance if you're out in the middle of the lake. Or, well, even if you're just on the shore, you just choose a spot where the uh, where there's nobody uh, nobody around you, right? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to see. My wife is the, is the fisher. She's been holding a fishing rod since she could when she was so young because that was four extra fish her family could bring home. Yeah, no, and uh, I think there's probably going to be 
there, we've noticed like in the past couple of years, probably the last decade, I guess, there's been um a return to people wanting to be more self-reliant. And uh, I think this is going to be a big kick in the pants for a lot of that movement. Uh, a lot of uh, people like you see it on the tiny homes and all that fun stuff. But uh, I think there's going to be more people wanting to get out there and getting their own food. Um, going back to purchasing directly from the farm or the butcher and uh, getting away from uh, purchasing as much from like the, the grocery stores, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you can even see that happening on a, on a national level. We're starting to realize that, you know, global supply chains aren't, aren't always as effective as we think they are. We can't always trust the private enterprise to be as responsive as we need. So to go back to uh, one of your, your previous points with, uh, with our neighbors to the States, one of their another short-sighted ideas that they had was the Defense Procurement Act and trying to stop all the PPE from from entering Canada. Well, I don't think they realize, and this is going to be a bit of a hometown brag, but all of the pulp that they need to make the surgical masks and the gowns actually come from northwestern Ontario. We supply all of North America to make these things, so if they want to stop our PPE, we very well could stop their supply of pulp to make it. Well, that's what 3M said. That it would end up causing less masks being produced because there's going to be retaliation. Like it's not just Northern Ontario. There's a mill out in um, uh, BC that produces the pulp for the masks and, and other medical supplies. And and, and it's really short-sighted uh, to think that it, it's just about you um, when this is a global problem, a global pandemic. That's what it means. Pandemic means more than one place. And it's... I think that uh, I think one we're going to see a, a drawback in local manufacturing. We're already seeing that with uh, our our own PPE. There's a bunch of companies that are producing that. We have the local tests being produced by that uh, Spartan Bioscience or Biotechnologies out of Ottawa. That is going to drastically improve the amount of uh, uh, people getting tested, and we're going to see a spike in numbers being uh, tested positive because there's going to be a lot more asymptomatic people going and get tested because of it. And uh, I think that uh, this is going to see a lot of local manufacturing returning, hopefully. But it does highlight a lot of negative aspects of a global supply chain. Um, like China is blocking certain things from U.S.-owned uh, factories. Like there was um, a factory in Mexico, uh, the, the Mexican state just below California. There it was a U.S.-owned factory um, and the Mexican state says, we want to buy some of the equipment to help us. And that, they said, no, we're only shipping this to the United States. So that state just said, okay, you're deemed non-essential. You have to shut down. Yeah, it's, it's truly the Wild West out there right now. Well, and I, I, I 100% see their point. If they're not going to produce any equipment for the local market, why are you staying open? You're not wrong. Like, they're not asking for them to produce all the equipment for the local market, but they want to have some of the equipment they produce be given to local, like be sold to local hospitals and lo local clinics. And they shut them down because they said no. Now I don't know if that's changed, but that was the last I read about that. Well, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons to, to be afraid or be, um, be careful. Cause I know a lot of people are, are feeling the stress and the anxiety because this is such an unknown system. But ultimately, I think this is I think this is also a fascinating case study because this is to be to be, you know, 
I don't know how how I want to word this, but this this virus seems to be perfectly placed to show us all of the spots in society that are vulnerable that we've just we've ignored for the last thirty years. We're starting to see like Canadian Canadian prison systems, for instance. You have all of these all of these prisoners that are there from as a result of like the war on drugs, people that really don't need to be institutionalized, and now they're all stuck there. And it wasn't until scary scary enough it wasn't until a week ago that they actually started screening prison guards in ontario i'm not sure if you knew that or in all of the federal correctional facilities they didn't start screening until a week ago and those places are just a germ factory well yeah but i think a lot of that had to do with the lack of tests um and with uh, spartan bioscience doing their thing i think that's going to uh, drastically improve the ability to test uh, everybody Oh, it wasn't even the test. They weren't even they weren't even screening people with the taking the temperature and asking if you traveled outside the country. Oh well, that's a uh, that's short sighted, and uh, that could possibly cost lives. Yeah, you start noticing all of these other companies. As soon as the pandemic hit their country, a lot of them were releasing their excess prisoners, the ones that are there for parole violations because maybe they smoked a joint while they're on parole and they shouldn't have. And now they're they're being released, and I haven't I haven't seen that in Canada. All I can say is uh, nature is a cruel mistress and showing us our uh, short sightedness in society. Yeah, but I think this also could be could be a catalyst for for positive changes in in society. Maybe we're going to start realizing that not everybody can just have a full time job where they're making making minimum wage. That's just it's not sustainable anymore. If we need to, you know. If we want to mandate self-isolation and social distancing, well, maybe we need to start giving people the carrot to do it. We can't just say you must self-isolate for for the good of society because, yeah, it's great that you may want to self-isolate. But if you can't afford to do that, are you going to be able to social distance? Maybe maybe we'll learn from the CERB and we'll just start giving everybody a, a basic income, just enough to live on. Yeah. I think that's a good point to end on. All right. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. This was really fun. Okay, everybody. Stay home. Stay healthy.